scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fear of God podcast. All oh, podcast listeners everywhere's favorite podcast or at least that's what they tell me. Uh, speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Now, typically with me is one Mr. Reed Lackey, gentleman extraordinaire. Um, he was with me a minute ago. He was here. He was, you know, he stopped by and said, hey. And then he went to go play on the swing set outside. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know, didn't know they had a swing set at their house, but I don't know. I don't know. What, what, maybe, maybe. Maybe he'll come back and tell us a little bit about that. Uh, in the meantime, while he is gone, while you and I are hanging out here, do us a favor. Go leave a rating, leave a review, better yet, subscribe to this here podcast. Uh, it would mean a lot to us. Um, you are catching us in the middle of phase two of a very special series we have dubbed Speaking in Tongues. If you want to know what Speaking in Tongues is all about, go check out our The Wailing episode from the top of September. Um, but this is phase two where we are discussing foreign language horror films from across the world uh, with some very specific intention behind that. Like I said, go listen to The Wailing. Last week, however, we did discuss the Austrian film Good Night, Mommy. Um, we did do a little drop-in, a little bonus episode for you guys on Friday, uh, or Roundabouts Friday, uh, where we kind of pitted Suspiria 77 and Suspiria 18, 19, <laughs> haven't done that homework yet, uh, against each other to kind of see which came out on top. And let me just tell you folks, I am she, um, is all you kind of need to know there. But that was a fun little bonus. We are in the middle of speaking in tongues. Uh, today we are going to be talking about... Uh, the film from 1988, The Vanishing. While we're briefly touching on the speaking tongues idea and while Reed is in absentia, um, a portion of every merch perch you guys make during this series, okay? Uh, go to TeePublic, um, TeePublic.com. You plug in the Fear of God podcast, all one word. Uh, a portion of anything you purchase there is going to go to the Florence Project, um, which again, go listen to the Wailing to learn about them. Uh, but you can, when it comes to merch purchase, you can go make one. Uh, you can get a t-shirt. You can get a magnet. You can get a pillow. You can get a mug. You can get a read. Hey, buddy. You're here. You can't, you're back. Hi. I was worried you're going to get so enthralled in your playtime, you just forget about us. You, well, that that does tend to happen, but I do have a, I do have a quick question. I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of lost here at the moment. Oh, so, okay. It was a good show, um, by the way. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was, I'm, I'm looking around. It's a pretty sunny day here. Uh, you know, there's not very many clouds. Like the wind has swept the clouds away. So what I want to know is, is uh, you know, I'm kind of lost. Can you, can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? Can you, t can you tell me? I've lost my way, so I just need to, I just need to know how to get to Sesame Street. Can you? I mean, I'm down to roll with a lot of what you give on this show, but that was really random. <laughs> 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 so funny. 
Um, so no, no, no. It's uh, you know, because it's it's relative to the movie and that like is it Sesame Street it, is not Sesame Street, but like it's it's meta layered because like you know he's lost. He's trying to pick some things up that he obviously knows how to get to. So I was like, where do where where would I ask for directions that I clearly know how to get to or that's ridiculous? And I was like, well, can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? So, but you know, jokes aren't funny when you have to explain them. So <laughs> I guess this. So thanks for that. Thanks for making me. Uh, Ooh, thanks for making me go through that. That's yep, okay. That's thanks good. for making all of us go through that's that. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're welcome. <laughs> wow. Oh jeez. Anyway, doing, so hi, buddy. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So, um, perhaps to our listeners' sadness, the 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 reality is we get a lot to get to in these segments, uh, and we uh, we really want to give some proper time and attention uh, to that. Uh, in the spirit of being brisk, we're, we're actually, uh, for this episode and, and possibly for next week as well, we're going to skip our beloved What You Watch and Read and Listening To segment. Um, but I do want to make a couple of comments, uh, just kind of in, in generalization. Okay. Uh, we neglected to do this last week just because of the timing of recording and, and just life stuff and all the things that have been going on in our respective worlds trying to navigate recordings. But I want to give, on behalf of the fear of God, huge, gigantic, enormous... Uh, fantastical props to one Mr. Steve Beckley for Beckles. his October run of the 31 days of Fogoween. Uh, Steve, thank you so much uh, for all of the detail. It was a fun romp for us walking down memory lane. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed that as well. That was all posted every single day um, on the Facebook page. There was a brand new episode featured. There was lots of great fun stuff, little quotables in there, landmarks for introductions of segments along the way. It was uh, masterfully put together. Uh, Steve, uh, well, he, just, you, he totally curated all of that. Like, yeah. Oh, that was completely we didn't tell him the 100% him. Yep, there was 100% him, which was a delight for me because, like, I didn't know what he had up his sleeve. I didn't know, like, I knew kind of the first few because he had told us about that beforehand. But, uh, but then from there, he just sort of went with it, and I was, uh, I was delighted. So, thank you so, so much, Steve. Uh, really, really appreciate that. Go to the Facebook page, check that out. It is kind of a, a listener curated greatest hits of the last few years of the Fear of God, and uh, we think you'd really, really enjoy and appreciate revisiting some of those. So, huge thank you to Steve. And so, yeah, uh, beyond that, uh, we're, we're going to move right ahead into our very next segment, which uh, this episode is going to be our kind of first true segment, and that is... <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> I have a frog in my throat. You okay? Yeah, <coughs> yeah. I think he brought a friend. So, <coughs> okay. It's like, a, it's like a cockroach down the throat while you're yes. sleeping. <laughs> no. Good night. No. <laughs> Mommy. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> bypassing the cockroach and frog throat chokes, we are traveling back to the town of Wyndham, the town where, once you're born there, nobody leaves. <laughs> the town where strange things happen. The town where there's lots of people perhaps related to each other, perhaps uh, they are each other in different <laughs> contexts. Who knows what kind of relationships will be revealed and what kind of connections will be made as we visit Netflix series Dark Season 2, Episodes 3 and 4, right here on the Fear of God's TV Guideposts. Nathan! Breed. Okay, so we are diving in. 
this particular conversation into episodes three and four of season two. So, uh, I, I just I, I want to kick a couple of things off here. I had mentioned last episode that, uh, well, what's funny is I had mentioned last episode a few things about the episodes we're going to be discussing here. So, sorry for that, guys. Um, but, but but you could just say it's like you went back in time, like time is a face in the water, like it's all relative. That's like, true. You know. Yes, yes. That was that was future me just visiting right, 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 right. present me, right. you know, a week ago. And so, yeah. I that, noticed that little, that little sort of, you know, marking around your neck kind of was a little distinctive. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's weird about that? I have been meaning to, I've been meaning to go back. I'm, I'm just curious about stuff like this. I've been meaning to go back and watch some clips from season one to see if he has that mark. I'm sure he probably does. Who? But because there was so Elder? much uh, tr- uh, trench coat man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's, because yeah. he's because I'm shrouded. like right, and so I'm like I'm wondering. I'm just I'm just curious about things like that. I'm like, did they know something that subtle? Something that specific like was you know was there an element to it even in season one that they played around with i'd be very curious to see but haven't haven't done that homework yet but yeah so here we are one of the things that has happened that sort of drives a lot of my favorite scenes in episodes three and four is that older jonas has reacquainted himself he he introduced himself during i think episode either one or two to his mother hannah and uh, what begins to develop over the course of these next couple of episodes is uh, something that I alluded to last week, where his Jonas's introduction to Hannah then loops into Hannah bringing in Charlotte Doppler into this whole cacophony of time travel mysteries, and then you know Charlotte loops in her husband. Then they eventually loop in Katarina, and so it becomes like this whole little gang, this whole troop of characters that are now kind of in the know for some of the things that are happening time travel wise. And that's something that those scenes where everybody's just sort of talking in the real about this phenomenon, uh, I really enjoyed those. Those were some of my favorite moments. They're not really volcanic scenes. They're not exceptionally uh, written or anything like that. They're just it, it, It's just great fun to see the concept kind of bringing characters together in uh, this different way. And so uh, that's, that's my first big note here is just I love that aspect of these pair of episodes. It's most prominently featured uh, in episode four, but, uh, but that is something that I really do enjoy. What do you, what do you like about about old dark season two episodes three and four. Um, not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't have a ton of notes, evidently. Oh no, I got notes. I got notes. I, but I was trying to think of some s- summary statement. Um, uh, I, three and four were harder this time through. Uh, this is my second okay. viewing. Um. To me, the the seams that I would identify in season two show more profoundly uh, on this second viewing, that, which, hear me, is not uh, to say there's nothing valuable in season two. There's a lot of really good stuff here, some of which we'll get to next week. But um, mm-hmm. I, 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 it's interesting to me, and I would be curious to hear you articulate a little more, like what you're identifying as something you enjoy, I find quite... Uh, I was going to say boring, but that's not why I dislike it so much as mm, mm. just um, I don't know that I like everyone being in on the story now. Like, in, Oh, in, that's in, fascinating. In, okay. In on, because it's kind of like, and, and you'll know this, I can't remember exactly where this is, but even all the kids at a certain point, like everyone in the town effectively that we, right, that we know right. is kind of in on the, 
on the game. The, the jig is up, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> and it's no longer a mystery. And anymore. I right, and I can't decide if I like that. Um, okay, because what that's going to inevitably mean is that that's all we're basically talking about, the char- char- character wise, and and okay. So so, I guess all that to say, yeah, I'm a little lukewarm on three and four. There's some decent stuff. I mean, goodness gracious, episode three out of the gate. I told you this was the sexy season. You got some crazy 1921 action going on. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. And, and yep. then, no, not 1921, 1953. Um, 53, yeah. And not just Mama Tiedemann and uh, Mama Nielsen, but that, what, come on. That's a really, that's a really weird scene with the kids in the forest, like Claudia. Oh. And, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's it was yeah, it was strange. That never comes up again. Really? Just FYI, just FYI. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is so no, because it was so random. It was just like, and and it was almost kind of like a non-event. Like he, right. what we're describing is like so somewhat randomly. I can't. I'm struggling oh, to remember randomly. the context for for why he does it. But all of a sudden, he just uh, well, she demands just, it of him. Oh, that's right, that's right. And then he just pulls his pants down. Yeah, it's and, these, it's the two kids walking through the woods, like kids, like. You know, ten-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, yeah. some, somewhere in there, ten or eleven, somewhere in there. Um, and and it's Claudia that is weird. as a little girl, yeah. and Tronta, uh, who is Ulrich's father, as a little boy, and she just demands he drop his drawers in the middle of the forest. Which again, it's like so I strange. said, it is weird. It is worth remembering, though, if if you haven't um, remembered uh, that in season one, towards the very beginning, uh, in eighty-six. Uh, Tronta and Claudia are are alluded to having had an affair of some sort. Um, uh, I don't know if you okay. remember that, but but anyway, yeah, it's a really weird scene. Uh, but yeah, it is strange. Yeah, I didn't mean to camp out there that long, but um, <laughs> interestingly, our, our what we discussed last week, the bootstrap paradox, comes up explicitly in episode three when yes, when eighty now seven Claudia, uh, who has been tipped off by her elder iteration to the whole game. I guess that's kind of a thing too, right? It's like, it's totally interesting when like a Claudia, you know, the, the middle mid, we'll call her mid Claudia, right? Middle age Claudia. Okay. Yeah, sure. When a character like that, or even a character like young Jonas, when they are pioneering, when they're blazing this story trail, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But you just like spill all the contents out onto the floor and everyone gets it. I don't know. It feels like it kind of loses some of the mystery uh, from that standpoint, but she, goes to visit Ten House and he talks about what a bootstrap paradox is and the way he articulates it is a thing that exists without ever having been created is his yeah. way of phrasing it, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I hear what you're saying about the... Uh, what I have... Uh, so there's something that I like and something that I've really struggled with this season. So um, I'll get to the thing I like second. What I've struggled with this season is that compared to the first season, in the first season, there was a very specific mystery that the entire town was invested in trying to figure out. And that was the the missing people, sort of the missing boys, uh, especially, but the, mm-hmm. the missing people yeah. in general. And we, the audience, knew that the resolution to that mystery was this time travel phenomena. So what I have somewhat struggled with in this season is how there is not a unified 
mystery that everybody is on the same page about wondering about. Like, like right now, there are disparate mysteries. There are tons and tons of questions that we have. But depending on what plot line you follow, the questions are different. And so that's that's something that makes the season as a whole so far to me feel a bit more disconnected than the first season felt because the first season, everybody was wondering the same thing. And of course, there were other particulars about their personal histories in the midst there, but everybody was wondering and kind of pursuing answers to the same thing. Um, But this season does not feel that way. To your point, um, even though I do enjoy everybody kind of being in the know about the time travel phenomena, it does like like that card being played does take away any of the ambiguity that the characters might have been feeling about that. You know, like well, now everybody knows what happened to Mikkel, and uh, and so now the other mysteries at play really revolve around this uh, Sigmundus sort of cult group, uh, the travelers that they call them, and who are they and what are their intentions, and are they benevolent or are they uh, are they darkness, are they light, what are they? And so that's really the, uh, the, the biggest part of the mystery. The only person that's continuing to sort of pursue the uh, missing persons mystery is this Clausen character that that they, right, that they right. at least in these first four episodes give maybe twenty minutes of screen time over four hours of episode content. So it's like, uh, it, yeah, that that part I, I kind of with you uh, struggle with a little bit like that. I just enjoyed uh, what I'm calling like I called them the Scooby Gang bunker version and Scooby Gang cave version with the other kids, you know, like running into sure. Bartosh and stuff like that. And so. Uh, so yeah, just I like the gang kind of coming together idea because I love the story potential in that. But but I'm with you uh, where the overall narrative feels less cohesive than it did in season one as a result of those sort of everybody having the knowledge. Well, and I wonder if this is just speculation in response to what you're saying. I wonder if creatively they would articulate averting apocalypse as the unifying narrative thread. Because Interesting. each, which which does make a little sense if you ha- if 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 season one is about unraveling what happened in the past, mm-hmm. and ev- even though people are being abducted in the present timeline, that's still a past event that they're now responding to. Sure. Then, if now your quote unquote threat is on the in the future, what you have to do or what they've chosen to do, I- I'm not in the writer's room to know if they decided this was a have to or not but Mm, that's what they mm. chose to do is you have to then uh, synthesize all of your narratives and and in order to do that on this show that means you have to invite and involve everyone into the the bigger picture because that knowledge will be the only thing that helps them if they're going to avert whatever this apocalypse is i I mean yeah i I don't know that i love that idea but but as you're talking about a unifying sort of threat that's what comes to me it's the only thing that ties it all together i can understand that yeah and i and i can get on board with that it's still a struggle for me in that the the characters um that have not encountered jonas directly have no idea apocalypse is coming so it's still even yeah i'm with you and so it still sort of is is dampened from the uh, the impact of season one's mystery, but I can at least get on board with what you're saying in terms of like, yeah, this this is something that they're kind of trying or could be trying to scratch towards, uh, narratively speaking. So I have one rather major complaint, but I, but before I get to my major complaint, I want to mention two things that I really liked. Um, I did really and like. Is this specific to three or covering both? This is episodes? specific to three. 
Um, so, so, and the, my, my major dislike is actually pivoting into four. So if you, so I'm going to mention the two things that I like about three, if you have anything more to say about, uh, episode three, which is called the ghosts, then we can say it then and then we'll pivot all the way over into four. Um, but, uh, I, I really did like older Claudia's sort of presence in three, the conversations that she's having. And then I liked the scene with Noah, uh, where Noah eventually blasts her away, um, and then we're not privy to the specifics of what he saw in the pages that he took from Claudia, but uh, it is interesting to see where they're going to go with that particular thing. Noah, uh, the character of Noah, this priest who in season one was abducting children and, and sometimes killing them, um, he has encountered older version of Claudia, who thus far the show has propped up as kind of potentially, most likely a benevolent figure, uh, although there's some characters that disagree. But um, so Claudia and Noah have a confrontation, and then Noah eventually like kills her in that scene. Uh, but he kills her to take these pages back from this book, that the missing pages uh, from, and I forget what the context of that book is in this, in this moment, but he was trying to find the missing pages of this book. He saw something in the pages that is the first moment I would say kind of has freaked Noah out. Like we haven't seen that the audience Um, and Noah is very alarmed by what he sees in those pages, though we were not given specifics of what that is. Um, So I really liked that scene. The other thing that I really liked is I liked the react because I really just like this actor a ton. Um, The older Ulrich reaction to seeing. Yeah. He's first of all, his presence in it. He's such a, captivating figure um he does the actor does so much just with silence we already commented last week on how he looks just like younger Ulrich but this actor who is a a you know completely different person in the real um he he just has such charisma and just chews up the camera in the best way possible like your eyes are drawn to him he's compelling you read so much in his eyes and his facial expressions he does so many things in such subtle ways but then when he sees Mikkel's picture, he just mm. flies off the handle, and that's. I just thought that was a fantastic scene. It was a really, really great culmination for this character that you know has been waiting more than three decades to re-encounter right. his son, um, or to even know anything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Precisely. Um, so anyway, I really, really liked that. Did you have any before I move over into episode four, which is called Travelers? Did you have any other specific notes about ghosts? Yeah, I would say I think this bears out in. Five to five also, but I think overall you will come. I, I, I'm you read, I think we'll probably echo this in time. Ulrich is probably the most interesting character of the show, perhaps. Interesting. Um, okay. He, he's, de- he's definitively the most kind of tragic. Um, yes. yes. But uh, in ways that you're not even at yet. But I just think, again, for me, the, as mentioned, I think last week on Goodnight Mommy, the appreciation I have for, okay, let's see how these metaphysical phenomena just impact people. He is, yeah. he is ground zero for that mm. illustration. Mm. Gotcha. Um, so I love, I, I'm with you. I love, I, I love Egon. I love that actor. I love the character yeah. and yeah. I love that actor. Uh, yeah. Honestly, honestly, both iterations. Um, but I especially am fond of the uh, 1986 version. Sure. Um, I, one just sort of film craft note uh, that I really love in three that I didn't pick up until the second viewing of it 
is there's a sequence of scenes, like one after the other after the other. It's a trio. And the first one, and it's all Claudia and Egon. Um, And it's the first one is old Claudia confronts 1953 Egon. This is the scene I think you're referring to. Yes. When she's sitting across from him at the station, she's heavy hearted because the scene you just alluded to when Noah takes her out is present on her mind, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, Or at least the possibility of it. Um, But she says, the world doesn't deserve you. Mm, She says, I'm -hmm. I'm sorry for everything. Sometimes the good ones get hit hardest. I am sorry. I really am. So there's that scene, which is really lovely. Immediately after it, I don't know if you caught this this sort of braided uh, uh, sequence here. Immediately after that, there's a scene with 86 Egon, older Egon, telling Mm -hmm. 86 Claudia of his cancer. And the two of them share a moment. Oh, yes, yes. Then there is a sequence of 1950 or i'm sorry a scene of young egon yeah talking to child claudia and she says yes she echoes elder claudia's words says you're too good a person the world doesn't deserve you i just loved that sort of trio of scenes yeah it was wonderful Um, and and, it was and and for as i'm sorry to cut you off but for as much as i'll give a little bit of pushback to this season like i don't love a lot of there are aspects of it i don't love Mm -hmm. um to me, at least, that just really does convey some some thoughtfulness, some intentionality of knowing what they have, sure, and being sure. competent in how to utilize what they have. Yeah, and it was those trio of scenes that you mentioned that really helped me to become endeared to Egon. I didn't like him season one. Um, I did think the actor was strong, but the character itself, I was kind of frustrated by in season one. But in this season, it's been you know those that trio of scenes was really like, oh man, I really you know <laughs> point blank, the show is telling you how at least one character feels about this person. But then just you see the way he is sort of unpacking the mystery of things. He doesn't grasp. Yeah exactly what's going on yet but he is he is close he's he's kind of it's one of those things where he is you know barking up the right tree but doesn't know it's a tree yet and and like he's he's figuring out some connecting points here but but has not yet at least verbalized if he is if the character has thought about it at this point he's not verbalized is there time travel involved here <laughs> you know like but he's right. but he's he's clicking with some of those connections and um so i just really like that and the way the uh, to your point the way that older actor handles it is just uh is really really wonderful it's I get, re- i'm gonna powerful. i'm i'm worried i'm gonna beat this drum the whole season of this show of this tv guide post but what you just articulated is exactly why I struggle with some of season two, which is Egon has to work for it. Like uh, some uh, of those 2019 characters don't work for the mystery at all. I They're just it. like, yeah. mm-hmm. here, you, here you go. And so it does kind of deflate some of the energy. Anyway. Yeah, no, I understand. With- I understand. Um, so moving over into uh, Travelers, I just have one <laughs> coincidental note, pure coincidence. Um, but I happen to notice when uh, mid-Claudia is reading the digital readout on the history of Wyndon. And did you catch there was a headline and the translation of the headline in the subtitle says... Head of nuclear plant disappears without a trace. Did you did you remember seeing that? And just one of the yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, the only reason I bring it, it's a little silly, but the only reason I'm bringing it up is because in the headline, the word uh, "spurlos" 
is up in the headline and we are covering today peak you know to a few in the next segment we're covering the vanishing which the proper original title of that is sporlus which is which means without wow. a trace and so Look i just you. i know so i just i saw that and i was like i would not have probably caught that inside dark if I had not been just, so attentive, you just to the, discovered a fear of God bootstrap paradox. Right? <laughs> Is there? It's, there's like, no origin. There's no origin for it. Um, so anyway, just to, <laughs> just to point that out. Um, so I, I struggle. So here's two things, listeners. You know, uh, bear with us. We're going to probably beat up on what is ostensibly a pretty strong episode, but beat up on like one thing uh, or two things about it. Again, I struggle with Clausen. I struggle with his presence in the show because I'm like, it's very clear to me that they're trying to prop up that he either will have a tremendous impact or already knows more than he's letting on with. But I just struggle with how little screen time they're giving him compared to the rest of the narrative. And, uh, and then like when he's there, he's, painfully ineffective like he basically just has these conversations where he asks questions he doesn't get answers to and then leaves and so i'm like what like why are you here what are you doing um but that so that's just kind of a sideways dislike my major dislike from episode five uh or four uh, four, Four. sorry four it's called the travelers so (sighs) we meet this character named adam and at the end of epi- and Adam is a much older person, heavily disfigured, like scarred about the face and head. And so we discover at the end of episode four, I remember I, and I made this comment in last week's episode um, that I felt as soon as we saw Adam, I was like, Adam's somebody we know. Like, I feel like Adam is somebody we know. Well, then in Episode four, at the end of episode four, Adam straight up tells young Jonas, not uh, Trenchcoat Man Jonas, he tells young Jonas, I'm you. So Adam is claiming to be a much, much older version of Jonas. And I was sitting there, and at first I was sitting there, I was like, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but then I went back, because there was like this this it was bugging me. I couldn't get it out of my head that I was like, but I feel like there was something earlier that doesn't quite jive with that. And I found, I found what it was. I went back and watched this one particular scene. Uh Oh, so Jonas, when he's talking to the 2019 scoop or the 2020 Scooby gang, like the bunker. Wait, Scooby wait, wait, gang. Okay. Let's, let's do this. So there's young elder and Adam. So young Jonas, elder Jonas, Adam, who are you talking about? I'm talking about, uh, elder Jonas. Okay. Um, so Elder Jonas is talking with the bunker people. And when Elder Jonas is talking about Adam, there is nothing in his language. I know from a scripting standpoint and I know from a d- production standpoint that we, the audience, have not yet been revealed that uh, Adam is claiming to be Jonas. So that's not been revealed to us yet. But... What is bugging me about that is that at that point in the story, I'm trying to be very deliberate, at that point in the story, older Jonas has been told that older Adam is Jonas. Like, he's been told that that's who he is. Yet he talks about Adam in such a disembodied otherness way that it bugs me. It's like it's one of those things where when the big reveal happened that he's that Adam claimed to be Jonas, I was like, this doesn't vibe with me. Like, like I'm not you're, I, like. And to be fair, to be fair to a listener who may not be watching Dark, 
when Reed, when you say Adam claims to be Jonas, he proves himself to be like it's not purely a, a statement. Well, sure, he's got the he, same he ring. Has, yeah, right, right, he's got right, the right, same right. like neck scar. Um, I just didn't want. I just didn't want you to accidentally be suggesting that he he doesn't back up at least his verbal claim. Anyway, go ahead. The, oh, no, that's that's true. That's a good point because he does physically re, like he doesn't physically resemble Jonas, but he has the identical neck scar that Jonas now has because of what Elizabeth had done to him in the in the far future. Um so I love I love I love future Elizabeth. She's a badass. <laughs> she really is. She yeah, she's she's pretty <laughs> she's, incredible. She's cold. <laughs> she does not care. She's not trafficking with anybody. Um but it just it, it's it's little things like that that somewhat bother me. Season 1 for all of its ambiguity is I feel pretty solid when you press on certain narrative loopholes like when you press on things you will find that they have baked into the substance of their individual scenes their characters dialogues what characters know what and when they know it it's it holds up under a tremendous amount of scrutiny i feel this well, one i'm sitting I'm here no that's okay i'm just i'll, I'll finish this and then i want your response yeah. but like so but this one that scene where Jonas is talking about Adam claiming there to be a loophole, even refers to, he even refers to him as like the leader of Sigmundus, and uh, and it's it's just it was very frustrating to me that older Jonas, who narratively would have known at that point that he is Adam, to be speaking about Adam in such a disconnect. You're already like it didn't make any sense to me. You're already telling everybody there's time travel. So there's time travel, and this person is this person, and this person is this person, but I'm going to continue to refer to my older self as this, you know, mysterious leader of Sigmundus and refer to him as another name. And so I'm like, the show better, for me, the show better, and maybe it does, give a very, very good reason why he's withholding that information, or I'm going to consider that a major plot hole um, for myself. So the short answer to that is this season does not explicitly resolve that tension you're identifying now i will applaud you because it's funny i feel like you just articulated a subconscious thing that had not quite risen to the surface for me so adam to me is is just kind of a a, i'm not a uh, i'm not opposed inherently to you know clearly the show is establishing this notion of time folding over on itself sure it's just it's just this mess um, kind of idea. And so from that standpoint, you can kind of go wherever. And, and, yeah. and as long as there's a little bit of consistency and, and you know, the, the story beats track, I can kind of follow you there. But, um, you know, Adam as a character, it's funny, five minutes ago, you were talking about Noah and it, I almost silently ate a little crow because my complaint about Adam at the start of season two is the notion of a big bad. Well, Noah's clearly positioned as that in the first season. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, and, yeah and it sure. hadn't quite as acutely registered for me that way, but he really is. Um, but to your point about trying to sniff out Adam's identity to begin with, there are things a, a production does sometimes where it's like, okay, y'all <laughs> you are right. Oh, look at the older person whose visage is clearly disfigured intentionally obscuring that. You know what I mean? It's like, right, it's, right. it's like Charlotte driving down the road being like, but who are my parents? And I'm thinking, <laughs> right. we didn't know we were asking that question. Right. Um, of course. You know, so, so there are things that, that stick out more 
presently in a way that may not be to the benefit of the show this season that Adam just as a character is one of those things. It did not bother me when he initially reveals himself as a Jonas or, or the Jonas or whatever. Um, you're identifying the wrinkle of, uh, elder in the bunker stating that. So there's two, there's two possible. This is, this is literally me speculating. I've seen the whole season, but this is me speculating. Sure. Sure. One possible natural response is that elder Jonas has utilized just a psychological defense mechanism because he doesn't want to be Adam. And so thus he disembodies, he does this. This is again, this is Nathan speculating, not Nathan who's seen season two. Um, you know, he, he is sort of intentionally psychologically distancing himself from this person who okay. he does whatever he can to not become them. So thus he is to, he is to elder Jonas Adam. Now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it, then the question would be, well, why exclude the information from these people that, Oh, by the way, well, you know, fair question. Maybe he just doesn't, that's shame. That's, you know, it's, it causes a shame spiral in elder Jonas. And he doesn't want to go down that path <laughs> of letting everyone know. Oh, by the way, guys. Um, well, Another note, and then another possible solution here. Another note is we don't know the lived experience between teen Jonas and elder Jonas. Right. We don't know um, where he aged. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I just mean like we don't. We're not privy to that data. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there. You know, you could say. He got he got kicked by a horse one day, and Elder Jonas blanked out of who Adam was. You know, whatever. I'm just I'm just saying the the possibility exists. Now, I'm just going to warn you: the same thing that happened to you at the end of season one will happen to you at the end of season two. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in a way that so season one of Dark, the content of season one did not frustrate me. The end of season one frustrated me a little bit. Yeah, the content of season two of Dark kind of frustrated me a little bit, and so when this end happens, you'll be like, "Well, son of a b, y'all." You know, <laughs> right, it's like right, it's like right. okay, you keep you keep handing me stuff. I'm thinking I'm holding on to it, then this god god particle goes all swishy again, and I can't yeah, hold on to what you're sure, giving me. So, sure. I say that to say, what happens at the end of season two? There might be a, a third or a, a, an even wilder explanation. For why Elder Jonas doesn't make reference to him being Adam, I don't know. I'm uh, just sort of mm, speculating. Gotcha, so, gotcha. but I do think the only credit I will give against that accusation or against that critique, and I do think it's a valid critique, is however however messy I think season two is. Generally speaking, the creators are pretty conscientious of what they're putting on the table. Mm, um, mm, gen- yeah. Generally, again, sure, sure, you know, understood, understood. Will yeah. will will your critique get wrinkled out? I I don't know. We don't uh, know. It does not yeah. in season two. <laughs> so and and again to 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 the frustrations that we may feel at the ending there, uh, there has been announced and is in production a season three, which is uh, going into the structure of that season. They know it will be a finale, so it will be in their hands to like whatever we're left with at the end of season three will be what the creators have decided to leave us with versus what happens sometimes with shows where they leave on a cliffhanger expecting another season and then don't get one. Um, like, like the, whoa, <laughs> like the, whoa. Um, but yeah, so uh, there is some maybe hope to be taken that the creators are being given ample time to close whatever threads they want to close on the story, and maybe we will see that. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. So I, I, yeah. I do. I do want to throw out. This is funny. 
up to now, we've covered four episodes of season two of Dark. Now, I had seen it before, so I'm in a position to not so much pay less attention, but to not have to pay as much attention as you would a first go around. So what I've done a couple times, just fun little anecdote, um, mm-hmm. like in the car pickup line for my kid's school, I downloaded these episodes to my iPad so I could kind of have them on the go um, ah. as needed, um, just knowing, okay, I need to refresh myself and take some notes and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so one, uh, I, I needed to attend to a few other little administrative work-related details. So this is a foreign language thing and you can't not read it. So I did FYI turn on the English dubbing for one of these episodes and it's (laughs) terrible. Oh my gosh. It's so bad. Like it is everything, you know, to be terrible about dubbing happens in the English dub version. The other thing that's really funny is on the iPad, as opposed to on through the Apple TV, which I imagine is how you watch it, uh, or some version of set top box. Um, (laughs) Uh, part of, I suppose, the digital file for the set-top boxes is the subtitles. Well, somehow on the iPad, on the mobile version, it converts subtitles to closed captioning. And the distinction here is everything gets subtitled, right? Because subtitles oh, okay. are just sure. dialogue, right? Right, right, right. right but right. closed captioning for the hard of hearing means they're going to articulate everything, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> what I have experienced over the course of watching a couple of these on on the iPad is so like, for instance, specifically Teen Jonas in the cave in 1921. Do you remember when he's trying to escape 1921 and he goes into the cave and he opens the door and he crawls in? There's nothing there. Right. Because he's frustrated that well, the tunnel's not complete. Right. Well, that just FYI was accompanied by dismal music. <laughs> OK. Um, but other <laughs> scenes from season two of dark have been accompanied by mysterious, oh boy, atmos- atmospheric, <laughs> ominous, tense, suspenseful, threatening, and yes, eerie music. Wow. <laughs> I just love wow. a scene will be going on. It'll be like eerie music, eerie music. Um, <laughs> Imagine <okay>. something eerie. <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, wow. I just, That's I mean, hysterical. at least, at least they're attempting to be descriptive. My Final critique. So you had this really astute, well-observed, you know, like just <laughs> read lackey intellect level critique <laughs> of the series that is really on point. My critique, my friend, oh boy. is we were so close to discovering Patchy's origin story. I know. Like, and then sh- th- we were I right know. there. It feels like a tease at this point. Like, oh, they're, oh, they're never def- going to tell that's us. De- that's definitely a tease. <laughs> I really, I really do hope, honestly, it becomes the, the sort of funny gag on like you never Dark find out like yeah. hey uh walmer or whatever his name is uh yeah, waller waller, <laughs> waller. How, how'd that happen to you oh my gosh you guys it was about a hang hang you know it's like a yeah. two actually... by four or a you know a truck what's a two by four it's a piece of wood you know like a giant <laughs> truck a giant truck drives past it's blowing its horn the whole time and obscures the whole dialogue yes exa- like uh, that's gonna be the absolute finale of season three is uh, like some <laughs> characters are all gonna be standing out and really like hey I never found out what happened to your eye he's gonna take a deep breath start to say it and then the credits are gonna roll that's gonna he's be, gonna, gonna be it. He's, he's gonna take off a mask at some point and reveal himself to be Jonas as well oh no oh no yeah. I just I and can't then, handle yeah. it can't handle to your it. to your to your critique about Clawson as as little as I like the character, I actually do like the actor. He's he's pretty he's pretty good yeah, at, I being, that. Yeah. at at being at being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, well, if uh, if that con- yeah, if that concludes our uh, then then we'll go ahead and uh, 
that concludes yet another episode of TV Guideposts here at The Fear of God, where we're making our way through the slightly frustrating and uh, still somehow uh, remarkably entertaining series uh, Dark on Netflix, uh, a series that uh, deals with time travel and characters and perhaps some mistakes in narrative plotting, but we shall see how things play out when we visit our next installment next week of TV Guideposts. TV Guideposts. I like how it's meant to be like, uh, in in our version of the segment, it's meant to be a somewhat promotional thing, but it's turning into like comment- <laughs> commentary <laughs> on the... Uh, Turns out uh, Reed and Nathan are not very big fans of this episode. <laughs> um, all right, so Nathan. Reed. Nathan. Okay, so Reed. listeners, so uh, we... Reed, Reed. Yeah. What are you about to say? What are you about to say? What do you mean? Reed, like... I don't know. I don't know what you're about to say, but I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> so we are covering. We are covering this week um, a film that is. I don't. I. I've tried intentionally not to use this word as much because I feel like <laughs> I diluted the word to death so oh, much did? in our first like fifty, sixty episodes or so. But I think this film deserves it, man. This this film is a bona fide masterpiece in my opinion. You know it's hilarious. It's hilarious this is coming up. At work the other day, uh-huh. I referenced I referenced your masterpiece thing because I've got a coworker. Now you are far better equipped to dole out some of the verbiage you used than some of my colleagues. <laughs> but I've got a coworker who like is a great guy. Yeah. Super energetic, little Italian dude. Likes pop culture sort of like okay. sort of likes movies or mm, likes to talk like he knows movies oh. but really doesn't and like literally his word for every movie and i've started making fun of him for it is classic he's like oh, oh man that's oh, a classic okay. i'm like buddy cool runnings is not a classic like <laughs> you it's cool that it's cool that you've got nostalgia for it like but that's not a classic like you know Whoa, 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 whoa! Uh, uh, you know, um, what's that movie? Cool Runnings. What's that? What's that movie with the Great Bambino? The Sandlot. Like, okay, oh. maybe a classic to certain people, but like, you know, like wow. your bar is kind of low here for what are classics. But it's <laughs> cool he loves runnings. that word, so I pull up. I know they love it. It's like, <laughs> that's such oh a, man, that's a classic. What like, I love. Okay, so here's the thing. What I love about that <laughs> is like, Cool Runnings is like one of those halfway decent <laughs> movies that is definitely not a classic, but it's like a halfway. <laughs> But it's a halfway decent movie. It's like such a great because it's so random. You know, it's like you're yes. not you're not oh, yes. you're not picking on the low hanging fruit there. It's like such a very specific reference. It's like when somebody's like, you know what movie I love? The Phantom, starring Billy Zane. You know, like it busts out right, this right, whole right. obscure thing that's like, who what? knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? He does. That's for damn so th- sure. Well, actually, that's The Shadow, starring Alec Baldwin. Oh but either no, one. <laughs> Billy Zane still though, right? <laughs> I think Billy Zane is in no. it. I think he might- I it's don't a Baldwin. Remember. Is it a Baldwin? Yeah, it's Alec Clearly, Baldwin. Clearly, the these are not classics. But getting back to it, we're spending way too much time on films I don't want to talk about. So, right, right, um, right. So this film, directed by George Sluzer, I believe I'm saying that name correctly. Um, it's a Dutch film from 1988, and it is called, the English title is The Vanishing. The original title is Spurlus, which means translates literally uh, like traceless or without a trace. So this is a this is a 
I'm going to have to, uh, listeners, if you have not seen this film, uh, we're going to talk about every aspect of it, but it's the rare film, I feel like, that you could know. It's a classic. Everything, it is a classic. You could know everything about it, and I think it will still be very affecting for you when you see it. Not every film that we cover is like that, but this is one that I think you could listen to the entire, I mean, I want you to see it. Go see it and then come back to the conversation. But I, I feel like, even if you know everything, it is a film that holds tremendous power. This is my third time seeing it, and, and I just it keeps get getting funnier every single time. <laughs> wow. See, speaking Sorry. of classics, so um, <laughs> that's a classic. That is a classic. Um, but to us. this this is a read, film that like read read what? what you just keep talking like you've made me not talk about this movie for like a month now <laughs> because ahead, take it away because we had. We had technological blips and burps, and we couldn't get to it. And Reed, I love the vanishing. I just want to talk about the vanishing, but All you right. just keep talking. Go, 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 I'm go. Just, you go. I'm, I'm just gonna, playing with I you, know. but I'm just trying to. I'm going to go refresh my drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm playing with you, but I am also wanted to make sure it's clear my energy and excitement and enthusiasm for this movie. I don't. Uh, yeah, I loved it. I have come, what, what are you going to say? Well, I'm going to talk about you for you a second. You can talk again. So, okay. Like, so, so. I have learned that uh, in in our time together, I we decide on in these our movies. Fear of God time, or yes, just like fear of God time. Or, okay. No, no, fear of God time. Um, we decide on these films, and I have figured out, like you, you know, you you might really enjoy a film in varying degrees or whatever. But I've learned to tell, like, when you text me, imminent to your viewing of the film, anything about it. It, I, I have learned to recognize that that it has elicited a strong reaction from you. Like if you if you and and you did for the vanishing. Like as soon as vanishing was over, you texted me your affection for it, and I, I've come to know like oh yeah, Nathan's very excited about this film. If he took the time to text me after it or you know send me something of his thoughts about it, then uh, so yeah, I am actually very eager. I'm gonna heap a ton of praise on this film. I'm sure you will too. I am eager to hear which I have not yet your thoughts on the vanishing, Mister. Nathan Rouse, go. It was a classic. <laughs> <laughs> right up there with cool running. No, the like shadow. I don't I, like I even, so. So it's clear are are the blips and burps I'm referring to of the last however long was when we lost Suspiria. Yeah, because Suspiria was my was the computer glitch, right? Yeah, or Suspiria was, was a computer glitch at first. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then something else. Oh, and then the fire. Yeah, um, the fire so, caused our power like, to go. Out. Been, it's been a crazy month. Um, <laughs> but The Vanishing, we were supposed to talk about, I think, during the glitch night or during the fire night, regardless. Yeah. And it just keeps getting put off. And I, here's a an angle. You know, the fact that genre-wise, we tend to cover quote-unquote horror mm-hmm. can sometimes prop you up for not... Um, for not not being able to be surprised. Because like, well, I know the general flavor, right? Sure, like, okay, okay, yeah, I, sure. I kind of know I'm walking into something that someone's going to be dead or there's going to be blood or something, you know, like whatever. Right, um, right, just, right. Or there's going to be monsters or ghosts. like, And so, unfortunately, that can predispose you to bias or the bar gets almost raised, right? Like okay, you sure, can't, yeah. You can't just plug in because you're like, well, I kind of know the conventions, so you got to kind of do something a little different. Um, the Vanishing... All I knew about it was the the cover art, and I had not even seen the wanted poster or the missing poster cover art. I had only seen the Criterion cover art, which is oh the, wow, which is very sparse. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just yeah. more like a piece of art, kind of mosaic idea that doesn't really convey anything. And so all mm-hmm. you know is the title. So 
So that's how I went into it. And this is so hard to do. And, and, and kudos to the films and media that can pull this off. But especially in our behind the scenes, saturated pop culture environment we live in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like genuine surprise is really hard to come by. Sure, of course. You know, like not just the tone and flavor of, of a film or book, but actual events in the story. Sure. So something I loved about the experience of watching this movie was, and we can get to particulars, but just in terms of general response, the, you know, the title. Okay, it's called The Banishing. Well, again, I knew nothing. Like even Goodnight Mommy. Uh, okay, well, there's a subject in the title, Mommy. Okay. Right, right. Um, right. There's uh, two boys in the cover art. Um, so you kind of know the players, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. The Vanishing, at least the art that I had seen and had not and had avoided synopsis, I didn't know the players. I didn't know the story. Just clearly there's some sort of disappearance of some kind happening. Could so be aliens. You, we don't know. <laughs> whoa. Um, <laughs> when you first meet Rex and Saskia, I was like, okay, um, one of them is going to vanish. Like that's now that's our story. Yeah, you know, right. so, so, so I guess the fun aspect of that is I sort of, uh, unconsciously or subconsciously rather kind of called it before it even started happening. It wasn't yeah. like an intentional, I predict this is going to happen, but just like, right, okay, right. these are who we're being introduced to. So this is what's going to happen. Well, so the tunnel sequence happens, which is great and yeah. terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh God, wow. What a terrible way for one of these people to vanish. Oh wait. Oh, no, they didn't. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're, they're back in the story where we got oh. both of them. They okay. didn't vanish. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. All right. Well, you know, okay. <laughs> Surprise me once, the vanishing. You won't do it again. Um, well, I'm then. <laughs> I'm on to your trickster ways here. It's almost like um, uh, Richard Donner holding three seconds for what's his face's head to be cut off yes. in, uh, in, in, in uh, o- the Omen. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so. So the tunnel sequence happens, um, then they get to the gas station, and she goes in. I was like, wow, here we are. <laughs> here comes the, here comes <laughs> she, the vanishing. She gone, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> poof, poof, she's vanished. Like, that's it, that's it. Yeah. As she walks back out of the gas station, I was like, daggone. <laughs> she's all right. frisbee this time. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, I know what this frisbee. It's like, is the frisbee going to vanish? Be, the, fi- this, the frisbee's going to vanish. They're going to throw the it. They're stakes, not going to know. The stakes just got really low on this movie. If the frisbee <laughs> is what vanishes. <laughs> it's like the, this, this loving couple just tried to spend an hour and a half figuring out what in the world happened to our frisbee. <laughs> it's just, and it turns out the camera just pans up and it got stuck in a tree. That's the end of the movie. You know, it's like, dang. It's like, why Cri- are you covering this? It's so Criterion so collection. Um, you know. <laughs> we got to have that. <laughs> Spare no expense. Grab, grab that movie. <laughs> that's that's a classic. Um, so <laughs> so she comes she comes back out with the frisbee, and I'm like, all right, you you done you done did it again. Like you surprised me. <laughs> I'm visualizing you watching this movie. <laughs> And you're constantly like taking notes and then deleting them. <laughs> like, wow. You're like, dang, go. Movie yeah, like, total, se- total, total sequence. Oh, what a wicked way to vanish. That's not cool. I'd feel really bad in that. I'm 
man, tunnel scare me. You know, just follow this whole brain train through the tunnel. Oh, my <laughs> then, God. Like, oh, oh, she back. Delete, 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 delete. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, well, can't talk about that on air. You know, oh, oh the gas gosh. station. Gas station. Lots of people vanish at the gas station. That's rough. Man, oh, gosh, what's he going to do? Oh, oh, oh she's, she's, she's back. Delete, delete, delete. You know. Um, delightful. <laughs> so, so, yes. Then the third and final, because now I'm just like, uh, who the hell knows what's going to happen in this movie? <laughs> is somebody going to vanish? Maybe vanishing is my expectations of the film. You know, like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> what they're doing. But what that did, it, you know, for this viewer at least, was just lowered your defenses. You're like, oh, uh, very much okay, so. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. What in the world? So not only is there the surprise aspect of the multiple fake outs on the vanishing itself, well, then. What's the character's name? The ultimate bad guy? I can't uh, Raymond is his uh, name. Yeah. Raymond. Yeah. Um, you know, you see him briefly with the cast uh, right. at the right. gas station. but Without it's just, any context it's, for what he's doing right. at yes. that moment. Yes. Right. Yes. right. Well, and then does she go back in the third time? And she, goes back, she goes back a second time. Yeah. So, so well, right, right, right. Yes. The third, the third potential vanishing, but the second gas station visit yeah yeah and so basically she so they're playing with the frisbee they're talking about you know they're sitting under the tree they're just kind of taking a moment to themselves and then they're about to leave she's going to drive and she's going to drive on a freeway for the first time so then she goes back in just to buy a couple of sodas she's just going to go in she's going to buy a couple of sodas come back out for the road and that is when she never returns and what the film does at that point it leaves us with him for a few scenes while we just uh, him Rex, yeah, her right. uh, her lover. Yeah, yeah. Um. So it leaves us with him while he's sort of trying to piece together what happened. And obviously she left with his car keys. So he has, so he has nowhere to go. So he's trying to figure out exactly what happened and, and trying to piece this together unsuccessfully. Um, well, then it, this it's a bold narrative choice. And for my opinion it is a brilliant narrative choice yeah (laughs) yes in this narrative because then the film completely pivots away yes from rex and spends the entirety of our time with raymond yeah and i don't know if this happened to you the first time you saw it but even when that pivot happens maybe it's maybe i'm crazy but there is suggestion there that it's a that's a a current pivot when in fact what right. has happened is it's a flashback that then catches up with yeah. the gas station. And yeah. that that was like, okay, you guys, <laughs> you <laughs> throw this at the end of the podcast if you want, but I am your bitch. The vanishing, <laughs> like you, you, you. <laughs> like, you've got, you got me. I just, I, you got me. You know, like I am, <laughs> I am flummoxed. I'm bamboozled. I'm flabbergasted. I don't know oh. what to make of this, but I yeah. am on board. So no, I like that first twenty minutes or so, whatever it is, is you know such a just you know sucker punch after the other of of like yeah unmet yeah. unmet expectations that from a just film craft narrative standpoint. I don't know, man. Yeah. I could masterpiece may be a strong word, but I'm going to use it. I don't know. It hadn't come uh, up yeah, this, this yeah. conversation. I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Obviously, well, then the subversion does not stop, even with. Uh, so we start to follow Raymond, and we don't like you said. We don't know when we first sort of pivot over to him that that's a flashback scene that eventually gets revealed or whatever. But but then like. One of the things I love about the film, it demands you pay attention, which is actually not hard to pay attention to the film. It's alarmingly riveting. But um, it kind of demands you pay attention because they don't do that thing 
where, and, and not that this is bad in films, but you know how sometimes when there's a big time jump, suddenly the film will say like three years later or, you know, something like that. Well, this film doesn't do that. You're following Raymond, and then all of a sudden, in a, like another scene happens, just the next scene in the sequence, and he's walking down, and he sees a poster, and uh, the the poster in uh, on some you know cover art for the film itself is this poster, which is just basically a missing poster for Saskia, which is the girl that vanished at the uh, at the gas station. Well, Raymond and his buddy are like walking by and sees the poster. And then they start talking about it, and and his friend is like, yeah, like she vanished like three years ago. Like, why is this guy right, still making right. such a parade? And that is your clue that all this time has gone by. That's your only clue is them talking about how long ago it was. We continue to remain uh, with Raymond for a large chunk of time, though it does start to pivot sort of back and forth, going back to where Rex is now with his three years later still obsessive search for what happened to Saskia. Um, but did you, I'm sorry to cut you off. Did you see, I'm just energized. Did you see the, I took trivial bits on this and then time got away from us and I deleted them off my phone, but (laughs) I pivoted. Vanishing (laughs) didn't happen. I was like, Oh, oh well. Um, (laughs) but did you see the origin for this script? Uh, well, it's, it's based on a novel called the golden egg. Um, but what do you specifically refer to? to Then maybe it's, then maybe it's the origin of the book. That must be it. Or maybe we're in a bootstrap paradox. And oh, yes. I didn't write it down. So you've written it down. I have seen this, but you tell it because I didn't write it down. So, so effectively, the author of the book, now I did write it down, but again, I don't have it in front of me. I'm just doing this from memory. But I'm pretty sure it's the author of the book. His inspiration for writing The Golden Egg was, which is you know the, the book that The Vanishing is adapted from, um, was he read a news story about a girl disappearing at a gas station and no one could find her. Yeah. Well, it became this whole, you know, he, he wrote this book or she wrote this book. I don't have the author's name in front of me. Um, and it's a, it's a guy. It's a and, Tim, Tim um, probably God, the friggin' patriarchy. Um, <laughs> and, <Wow>. uh, <laughs> um, then ultimately it turns out the girl that went missing didn't really go missing at all. Like turn up the next day, but yeah, he didn't, yeah. he didn't know that. And, you know, kind of gratefully or, you know, to himself at least was just, Gratefully, he didn't know that because it's what spawned both of these iterations. Of the sure, story. sure, yeah. Um, that's just pretty, pretty wild. No, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. And there was, uh, from what I understand, so uh, uh, Tim, I, I, I'm hoping I'm getting the inflection of his last name correctly because there's a, a there's an accent on it. But uh, Tim Crabbe is the author of the novel and uh, credited author of the screenplay as well. But he was working very closely with the director, George Sluzier, and um, he uh, was, I I guess, initially uh, there were some creative differences, clashes uh, with the two of them, and I think the relationship between the pair of them became somewhat strained in terms of their uh, clashing ideas for how to let this narrative unfold. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't have all the ins and outs of it, but... Um, uh, what, I, what I was mentioning earlier that I think is so fascinating, uh, I did read that the novel is much more straightforward than the film is. The film, the, in the way that it jumps around and all of these subversions, the film is more sort of light on its feet with the information it's giving you than the novel is. But one of the things I love about the subversion, and it's one of my favorite sequences in any of the films we've ever covered, but you know towards the end of the film, Raymond is now, what eventually happens is 
Rex is so obsessed with finding out what happened to Saskia. He's going on news channels and uh, putting up reward money and everything. And he's basically he's like, I just want to know what happened to my friend. I just want to know. So then Raymond uh, approaches Rex and is like, I'm the man you're looking for. I'll tell you what happened to her. Uh, he gets he gets sort of beat up for it at first, but then it, it transmits into, he's like, come with me. Uh, come with me back to France, and I will tell you what happened uh, to Saskia. So what that means is that Rex and Saskia's abductor are in a car together, and he's telling him all of these different stories. Well, then when you reach the, when you reach the point where he's telling him the story of that day at the gas station, and at this point, we, the audience, are no longer in delusion that Raymond abducted Saskia. We don't know what happened to her after that, but we know he abducted Saskia. And then the film is still, like, he almost abducts a different woman because his plan is, like, to get a woman into his car and then uh, to, once he gets her into the car, he will chloroform her and then take her to wherever he's going to take her. So uh, he, uh, he gets a woman and he's like, okay, I'll meet you over there with the car. And then she's like, well, no, it'll be easier if I just ride with you. And so you're sitting here thinking, like, oh, my gosh, he's going to abduct two people. But then... He puts the chloroform on the rag and sneezes and accidentally puts the same <laughs> rag up to his face. And so the woman kind of gets wise to like, oh, something weird's going on here. So that woman leaves. Well, then, as if that wasn't enough, then he meets Saskia and and meets her and starts interacting. And, and I'm kind of like you with, you know, with your like, here comes the vanishing. I'm like, oh, here's where he abducts. And then they like part ways. She buys the Frisbee and goes on and he moves on to something else. And I'm like, when in the world does this happen? <laughs> and so then like, then like piece after piece. And it's finally doesn't ultimately culminate until she kind of presses in on him. She's fascinated by his keychain, which has the letter R on it. And That's she right. wants to procure a keychain for her, uh, you know, friend and lover Rex. And, um, and so she kind of presses in to him and, uh, and then he just seizes the opportunity is like, well, I have a bunch of these out in my car and so she's it's it's so wild how it all happens this would probably have typically been in scares but it culminates in one of maybe only two or three truly horrifying scenes in this film uh to me um and that is when she actually is abducted uh when that when the film finally goes there in the narrative it is uh for me it was very upsetting uh, even though you know what it happened, I think I actually read in the behind the scenes that um, he was that actor of Raymond was more forceful than he probably should have been. Oh and it, wow! It did kind of wow. hurt her. Um, oh, that's sad to hear. Two, um, two, yeah. Two quick, two quick notes. One, I swear because the language you're using is what I initially thought, but I swear at one point in the film Rex refers to her as his wife. He does Am at I, one point. Oh, so, okay. so she is not. She is not his wife. But what happens is she, he, at one point, basically, when he's looking for her, says, I'm trying to find my wife. Okay. And, I, and I took a note then. I was like, oh, they are married. But literally every other time that they refer to one another, it is friend or girlfriend or something like that. So I think he was only in that moment... Either it's a it, either it's a mistake in the translation, which is doubtful given that this was a like a Criterion film, or... It was something that he was trying to elicit more reactions sure, from people sure. to try to, you know, embolden them to his cause. Uh, but yeah, he refers to her as his wife once, but uh, but she is, I don't think, his wife. I think she's just his lover. You know, um, I don't, yeah. I don't know what has to be in the air 
for this to occur with a film, uh, a viewing of a film. Uh, if I did, I would replicate it uh, with routine. But, you know, kind of from go, I was so bought in on their relationship. Um, mm-hmm. It Honestly, in some ways, the film reminds me of Strangers. Um, oh, this, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you you're kind of front load the story with this real dynamic, uh, you know, slightly troubled but still caring, you know, relationship that then yeah. gets kind of waylaid um but you referenced this so that's a single note was just how much i enjoyed rex and saskia's relationship at the outset but <laughs> i'll be doggone if the movie isn't hysterical in places too raymond's yeah, yeah. working out of the chloroform routine i was like oh yeah this is not supposed it is supposed to be comedic in the film but as in like this on its face is a terribly not funny thing but this right. is hysterical yeah <laughs> right right oh man and, and then his, raymond himself his, is kind of a likable like figure like obviously he's a monster in what he's doing but like he's he's genial and kind of bumbling and and he's a little comic well in that scene just so many like weird things when you don't know what the story is doing but like the scene of him testing the volume of the screams at the mountain house yeah oh yeah that's Mm -hmm. just wild right creepy yeah yeah Um, it's pretty it's pretty crazy let's see through your time jump oh uh purely a film craft note but um, I love the framing at the cafe when uh, Rex and the brunette are on are bookending the frame, and Raymond is blurred in the back. It's great because they never yes, and they never clear him up. Yeah, you know yeah, it. yeah, yeah. You yeah. know that it's him, but they never clear him up, and and the only sort of confirmation that you get that it's him comes way later in the film when. Uh, Rex tries to tell him, you're in a photograph I took at the gas station. He's like, nope, if that were true, you would have recognized me at the cafe. I was there at the cafe. And then you as the viewer are like, that was him. I thought that was him. He was just blurry in the background. Oh, man, it's great. It's it's really wonderful. It's such a wonderfully, you talked about film craft just in general. This is such a meticulously constructed film. But what's amazing about it is I, I, I used to talk about certain uh, musical albums this way where it's like, you know how there are some things that feel overproduced? Like it feels very much sure. like, oh, look at me. Look at all the film craft I'm doing. Fancy shots, fancy timing, fancy music, fancy whatever. And in the, there are other things that the craft is so cohesive and seamless, you know it took you know, tremendous focus and articulation, but it feels so organic. Everything about it just feels very uh, rhythmic and it feels very natural and that's the way I feel about the vanishing is I'm like there had to be for all of the different puzzle pieces that they move and all of the subversive techniques narratively that they interplay there's a tremendous amount of focus to tension but it feels like it all just develops naturally one step right after the other one and that is tremendously impressive to me I'm amazed that they managed to pull something like that off in a film like this and it is continually manages to build suspense while constantly kind of telling you more than the characters know or more than you as the audience probably should know. But it continues to kind of build this dread, this sense of dread and suspense in a really masterful way. It's, it's, uh, it's really amazing. It's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable film, a really remarkable film. You might call it, you know, a masterpiece. <laughs> I thought you were about to say classic. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> a classic so, masterpiece. Well, real quick, before we leave there. Um, sure. Your note about the subversive nature of the editing, rather, 
is interesting to me because, and we don't have to spend too much time here, but I've been thinking lately uh, about adaptation and um, the Watchmen specifically because I was been watching the the show on HBO. But like, mm-hmm. ignore my general neutral or to negative nature or attitude towards Zack Snyder, but the Watchmen film, which is very much a kind of beat for beat, you know, it's it's a very straightforward narrative. Like you made the reference a minute ago about. The Golden Egg is a much more straightforward narrative that the film alters uh, right, the, the, right. the form. And uh, also thinking about, but this is in the spirit of adaptation, thinking about It Chapter 2, which I don't love, and we'll get to that at some point, but like it, it changes a few narrative things, but it doesn't alter the text, the, the narrative through line. And yeah. I just wonder in examining these kind of component pieces and like what takes a director and turns him into a filmmaker and that's maybe this is that's an in the moment distinction i'm making but like sure, keep talking yeah. about the film craft of the vanishing it's like it's one thing to adapt a thing it's other thing to it's another thing to know what the form can accommodate mm. and to be able mm-hmm. to able to kind of play with the form itself in yeah. order to present a more interesting uh, uh, not just structure, but just, and I hate this word, but product. Like, like, right, right. I imagine, I imagine if you've ever read, or you know, if I ever read the Golden Egg, we might be like, oh, it's a decent little mystery story. Sure, um, sure. But what that film does is takes a decent little mystery story and and using the medium itself presents it in a way that catapults it into you know, as you would say, masterpiece. I don't use that word lightly here. Or I'm not making fun, but as in like, yeah, it just of course. transcends and it's why things like this are in Criterion and why something like, you know, Snyder's Watchmen or I would say um, It Chapter 2, like it doesn't, it doesn't mess with anything. And so right, in, right. It, it takes the safe choice. It takes the very safe road and in so doing delivers a very safe final product. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's not that challenging. I think that's something so impressive about this is that, in the adaptation process, it created something very challenging. Uh, yeah, sure. And that's the best thing. Particular notes about the film, then we can get to scares specifically, but um, I love that Rex, when uh, Raymond finally reveals his true kind of identity to Rex, right. uh, real explicitly, I love that Rex hits like a real person. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when Raymond confronts, there's like, there's no you know, Bruce Willis sucker punch. It is just a, a person flailing and hitting and kicking with yeah, no, <laughs> right, right. with no intention other than to attempt to harm yeah, uh, in exactly. a way that the, an untrained body would do. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. What's interesting about that. And this is a general note about the actor who portrayed Raymond. Um, you mentioned earlier that he was kind of a little rougher in the abduction scene than he perhaps needed to be. Presumably he was very aloof on set and, um, like as a version of method acting, if you will. And also right before the filming of that scene, picked a fight with a very trivial, annoying fight with the actor playing Rex to heighten the sort of frustration that Rex had. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, which I personally speaking, I kind of, I mean like, you know, performances that you get out of people like whatever, everybody's got their own process, but I don't like hearing stories like that because I'm like, well now that's just, that's just weird and, and frustrating. Like you, if you're an actor act, you know, like that, that's my personal opinion on it. But the, the finished, the finished product on it is, uh, is, is pretty how do I, how do I know what to say? It's in a, it's in a script. 
It's in a script. The words are there. Um, so, yeah. Um, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Wizard! <laughs> you shall not pass! Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Sorry, sorry. That's extras. okay. That's from the TV Diversion. show Extras. Um, yes, it is. So, uh, I have a note here. This would probably be considered trivial bits, but uh, it also could fit into scares or whatever. So, that idea, which is layered right into the first scene of the film of the dream she has of the golden egg and and hence at in a in a devastating way hence at the eventual fate um because she even said the the exchange that they have is, is she says you know I had my nightmare again last night and Rex describes it to her says you're inside a golden egg you can't get out and you float all alone through space forever and she says the loneliness is unbearable and it, it's it, that it's just a passing thing. She's just, at that point in the film, it's the first scene of the movie. We don't know anything. It's just this, oh, she's just had this nightmare. But then, and we haven't said it yet, but then when you find out what happened to her, it is, I mean, it is gut-wrenching to rough. think about to think about something like this. And um, and there's a lot to say about the ending, so I, I, am, uh, I am purposefully going to withhold some of that because we'll kind of talk about the ending in a second. But, uh, but just that whole idea of the dream of the golden egg and how that very subtly comes up, uh, I, I found that to be pretty remarkable. Uh, this, this actually could be in scares. I don't have it in scares as much as likes, dislikes, but the sequence when Raymond manipulates is not a false word here. Hoffman... I guess that's Rex's last name. I just have it written. Yeah, Rex Hoffman. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, when he manipulates him and Rex is trying to decide what to do at the end, when he's yeah. basically positioned oh. it as, I, I'll take you to her, but you got to drink this thing that's going to knock you out. Like, yeah. if you want to know, this is what you'll do. And just that, the filmed sequence, it's raining. He he just starts running like a madman. You know what I mean? Like the music's yeah. getting real wild. It's a, it's a wild scene. And he but charges I, it, himself up to it. And it's just, oh man, it's crazy. Because, and this is a good, time to reveal this to for listeners who haven't seen the film yet so what happens at the end is is of course raymond confronts and reveals himself to rex who's been searching for saskia and he basically says he says i will take you to her like nathan said i'll take you to her but you have to drink this thing that's going to knock you out there's a sleeping pill in it um for for you to know what happened you have to go through what she did that's specifically what he says to her you have to experience what she experienced and Rex says at first, he's like, well, if she died, then I'm going to die. So I would be an idiot to drink this. And and then Raymond, oh, God, this is terrifying. Raymond basically is like, okay, yeah, then fine. Then you'll never know. And and that's basically the choice that he leaves with Rex. He's like, yeah, you can walk away. You can just move on and you will never know what happened to her. Or you can drink this and you'll know exactly what happened to her. And it's it's a really compelling that we'll probably get to in a few more moments once we sort of un- unpack it a little bit more but that scene you're describing where he's basically sort of wrestling within himself transmitting it in this, this sort of mad running around yeah. while the you know like you said it's raining and the music is is escalating but um he's wrestling within himself of what jo- what choice am i going to make am i going to walk away from this obsession or am i going to you know uh press forward and see this through to the end and uh Oh boy. Um, so one note that I have here, uh, and it, it's probably appropriate to this. So the, the, the ending, uh, much are you like, about to, are you about to dive into the end? Cause I was going to throw a few pre end scares out, uh, throw your pre end things out and then we'll come back to the ending. 
So one surface scare and then one <clears throat> not so, and then we can go to the end. So the surface scare is Riri. Come on, man. Like, can't nobody yeah. with that kind of facial hair be trusted? Like, we just know this. Like, <laughs> like it's just, it is yeah. the doctor yeah. and eyes without a face. Oh, Raymond, ha- dude, he's yeah. got like oh, yeah. a blow dried rodent cadaver on his chin. <laughs> Like that is what it is. Did it's like you a... just use the words "blow dried rodent cadaver"? <laughs> wow! It's like a well coiffured dead rodent on his chin. Wow! Like a, a rat's butt. It's awful. And like, why you know, would anyone a bouffant rat there sitting on your, <laughs> on your chin? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Gosh. Like he should not have been trusted at all. Like, no, I don't know. No. I don't know why anyone did that. But um, on a serious note even knowing there's another hour plus worth of film left. Let's, let's see. How did I write this here? So the line preceding her, the actual vanishing, she says she's getting him to do this little call and response. Mm-hmm. She says, swear to that. The always sweet and wonderful Saskia will never be abandoned by me. Mm. That's what he's meant to say back. And that's oh when she gosh. goes in and that's when she's gone. And dude, the entire scene of him waiting at the gas station is like dreadful. Oh, I mean, it's it devastating. Is, yeah. Okay. It like, you know, it taps into that like existential dread that can so easily um, overtake otherwise rational situations. But we all sure. think about it all the time. Like, oh, you know, I, I think about this a lot as a parent. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, no, they're they're old enough. They, they need to be able to go do this single task that's in a somewhat public place. Um, it's fine. It's fine. And yeah, you know, the, the, oh, the clock, gosh. the clock stretches infinitesimally more than it should. And you're like, Oh my God, what's going on? Um, you know, yeah. he's old enough to go do that by himself. She'll be right back. Like these, these things we rationally can tell ourselves and, and 99% of the time are true, but Oh my God, when you yeah. use what is a generally just rational, normal scenario in life and, and just tweak it, you know, it becomes the most horrifying, dreadful thing. Like, this movie is is fantastic, and it, and it goes to some really amazing places from a film level. Sure. But that single scene is almost enough to be like, ah, oh, yeah, this is a bad, this is hard. I don't want to. Watch yeah, this. oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> well, because it should be noted, and we I don't think we've specifically mentioned this on the podcast that when she vanishes, when she's abducted, not only is it broad daylight, but it is at a very public, teeming with people gas station. Like yeah. it is, it is in to your descriptor one of the most sort of casual clearly nothing bad is going to happen here kind of kind of things and and that is a tremendous aspect of why it's so frightening um it would be one thing if if she's like no i'm going to go to the restroom around the corner in this dark alley and it's raining and everything's sure, going to be you yeah. know like that's one thing and like you said that's it plays with the expectations because the first scene in the tunnel like he straight up leaves her in a dark right, tunnel in right. the car by herself you know and and goes walks all the way to a gas station and fills a can of gas up and then comes back. So that's the time that you would expect, oh, no, I can't do this. I can't leave you alone here. Something bad's going to happen. But when it happens, again, broad daylight, teeming with people, and that's when she just simply never returns. And, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty dreadful. Um, one, one side note before we get to the end, um, I love the scene uh, where Raymond is rehearsing kind of practicing trying to pick women up and he's mentioning and he's mentioning like oh i don't know how to get to this very public well-known place you know whatever well there's a woman that he approaches Mm. that actually recognizes him 
and is like, "Oh hi, it's you don't, you know, oh my gosh, it's it's crazy." And then she's like, "You don't, you don't remember me, do you?" And then she's, you know, talking, blah blah blah. And then he's like, "Oh, well, I I really have to go. Yeah, fine. You know, it's night to night. Uh, you know, uh, nice to see you again. I, I really got to be going." And then she, in a blood curdling moment, totally calls him out because yeah. then she, because then she's like. You know, she I forget the name of the place that he says he doesn't know directions to, but she calls out this very noteworthy public place and she's like, Oh that and she's like, Go to any gas station, travel any freeway, you'll find hundreds of women and none of them will recognize you. And it's like and then she walks on and I'm like, Oh my gosh. It's just so again, blood blood curdling. Like she again, she just totally calls out what he's doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. Did you have anything else before we, before we sort of go ahead and unpack the ending and, and all that it may, all the ramifications therein? No. Um, so what happens at the end is, uh, the scene that we've already discussed where basically Raymond is telling Rex like, okay, yeah, uh, if you want to find out what happened to her, I will take you to her and I will tell you, uh, what happened and but you have to drink this thing that's going to knock you out and rex really wrestles with it and struggles with it uh but then eventually decides to drink the potion and to go on the journey well then we cut to a scene of like raymond kind of burying something in the ground and then rex wakes up and when he wakes up he has a, a lighter by his side and he you know like lights this lighter and he discovers that he is in a wooden coffin and has been buried alive and that is presumably because of what Raymond had said that is presumably also what happened to Saskia and uh it is uh, uh I mean I, I don't quite have words for sort of the the bottom falling out like emotional plummet that happens when it's like oh my gosh because it's not for me it's not so much the horror of seeing what happens to Rex because we can get into this in a little bit. Because Rex, you know, Rex kind of chose this. I mean, Rex, Rex pretty much was like, "I'm going to drink this thing. I'm going to go through whatever she went through." But it is the knowledge and the awareness of like, this is what Saskia went through. This is somebody who did not ask for this. Somebody who, you know, didn't was not aware of sort of the context and the danger inherent in what was happening. But this is what she went through. And then you recall that nightmare where she talks about a, a golden egg floating through space forever and you think about that golden egg in the context of a wooden coffin and it's like oh my lord this is this is terrifying and again devastating um and then well, I think, i'm sorry go no 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 uh, all i was going to say is just and then the film ends like raymond is sitting on his bench presumably at his at his home with his family and in the back seat of his car a newspaper headline about how strange it is that the woman who vanished three years ago, now the man looking for her has also vanished. And it's just, and that's what the film leaves you with. That's, that's it. <laughs> Happy ending, y'all. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think what, uh, you, there's so much, there's so many layers to that final scene's devastation. Yeah. One of them, it's funny, I, I Saskia's fate being revealed is rough no doubt but the two things that stand out to me one i don't know if you put this together but early in the film there's a scene of raymond with his family on the side of their mountain house mm -hmm. doing this screaming game yeah where they basically right. yell and listen for the echo Mm -hmm. And it's it's in the moment watching it, you're like, these people are weird. <laughs> right, right. Well, a few scenes later, or maybe the immediate scene after, I can't remember, but uh, Raymond 
encounters or intentionally goes to one of his neighbors uh, mm-hmm. at that mountain place and basically says, does he say, did you hear the screaming or did you hear us? Yeah, he inquires about it. He said, I heard somebody screaming up there. You know, I wonder what, I, yes. I forget exactly what he says, but he basically he plays dumb and is like, yeah, did you, you know, I, I heard some people screaming up there. Did you hear it? Yeah. And he and he claims ignorance, right? The, the, yes. the neighbor says, no, I didn't hear it. And, and just that resonated rather mightily with me. Just the pre, the, the, level of premeditation inherent in mm-hmm. all of Raymond's actions is is just goodness gracious it's devastating and so yeah you know i think so that's rough that's hard um but i think that what to me in this unless unless you want to withhold could pivot into possible themes and i don't have a sure. robust no, let's notion go ahead. but just the idea here is why that scene is so profoundly or rather the the nail on the coffin, as it were, for what makes that scene so just sucker punching is that when when Rex wakes up and we are present with him in there, like as a viewer, yes, like you're describing all of these pieces lock into place and there's mm-hmm. this oh my God moment. And yeah. but why it's so devastating to me for Rex is, and again, thematically speaking here, this movie is all about, or at least a highly prevalent strain of it, is all about how our grief, how our trauma opens us up rather deeply to manipulation and coercion. Mm. And mm. and like like you made the statement sort of in passing, though I know you didn't mean it blithely, of Rex having chosen this. Sure, that's one way to view it, but or rather that's one word to use. We could also say, goodness gracious, this guy is that that wasn't a willful choosing. That was a Right, right. This person has struggled for years to this unanswered thing for himself. And you know, I think for me, uh, and I'll just kind of pose this notion and sort of see where you want to take it, but like what's so powerful about this film is like, you know, the vanishing can be a literal one, sure. Um, in the case of a person's a missing person's type of scenario, but it also can be the vanishing in the sense of just an obscuring of knowledge, like mm, mm-hmm. like this this thing happened to you, or, or or a thing occurred that impacted you, that that traumatized you in some fashion, that you crave this to you you crave to kind of be reconciled to the knowledge like the, this pursuit right, of knowledge right. of, of of the what and the why is so strong and so magnetic and so compelling right that right. how do you let go you, you know saskia is the most tragic well, saskia is the the worst perhaps victim but rex is the most tragic figure here like mm-hmm. his uh saskia's loss is dreadful and terrible yeah. Rex is sliding down the mountain of his own fate because he can't detach from this hurt is mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. what opens him up to be preyed upon. It's almost like the wailing, you know, like yeah. Yeah. Uh, this this malevolent figure who's just looking for victims. Oh, you are ripe for the taking. Yeah. Um, right, now right, right. Raymond is very calculated and and conniving and and you know premeditated, but it's still Rex's. And I'm, I guess I guess where what I'm my hesitations and and 
falterings and pausings are just trying to bring this into the real. And that's, you know, when something, when, when, in a, when a situation in life occurs that we may be not in the immediate blast of, but affects us deeply, but we don't know what or why it happened, that pursuit of that knowledge can, can create its own trauma. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of talking. Well, and I, I think there's something to be said for the obsessive need. I mean, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not trying to be uh, coy uh, here with this. I mean, the age-old cliched phrase is "curiosity killed the cat," and there's this thing where if we Okay, so here's how I will pivot what you're talking about. I don't want to be um, dismissive of, of you made a very powerful statement just a few minutes ago about um, you know how trauma can leave you open and susceptible to manipulation. But I think that, and, and I mention this on the show from time to time. Listeners know this uh, pretty well about me or should uh, about this point. Um, I am uh, rather comfortable with the notion of and am and, and, and accepting of and embracing of mystery. There are simply things I will never know. There are simply things I will just, I, I won't understand everything that, uh, that happened here. I won't understand all of the, uh, the questions, won't have answers, all of that kind of thing, that there will be mysterious things moving in and out of my life, influencing things that I just won't, uh, I won't be privy to the mechanics of how they work or the substance of what their ends are. And so something like this, when I approach a film like this, and I look at this person who's like this living, breathing human being that presumably he had uh, a number of years with, the film alludes that he had a six- or seven-year relationship with this person. And then they're gone. Gone. No goodbye, no closure, nothing. They're just gone. And what is his undoing is his inability to simply let things go, to simply, uh, you know, he says to his new, we haven't mentioned her yet, but he has a new uh, love interest three years later and says to her in that cafe in a, in a, a pretty jerkish moment for him, um, he basically says, if Saskia was here right now, I would choose you. I would go, I would leave her and I would go away with you. But if I had, if I could choose anything, I would be back in that gas station with Saskia, which is so telling of his mental state that he has never been able to leave it. Three years later, he has never been able to leave, even though he has moved on into other relationships, moved on into presumably other connections. He's never been able to escape. And what is really gnawing at him about it, he even says to Raymond, like, I don't, I won't seek retribution for you. I just need to know. I just have to know what happened to the degree that he hypes himself up to willfully and actively go through, as Raymond puts it, what she went through in order to find out what happened to her. It's crazy. At that point, he literally, if, if, he, if he fears he's about to die, he does not care. He drinks down death rather than live on in the mystery. And that is, uh, you talk about his tragedy as a figure. I can think of few things uh, more tragic than 
I would be willing to as I'm 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 not intentionally trying to be pithy or poetic, but like I'm I'm intentionally going to subject myself to uh to potential death rather than live on in this mystery. And that's that's devastating. That is absolute an absolutely devastating thought and concept. Well it is, it is. And and maybe I'm hearing the wrong thing here, but my an initial sort of response there is that is that I work I wonder if the notion of comfort in mystery in this particular scenario is a bit more abstract, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's abstracting what is actually presenting as a pretty naturalistic kind of thing. And and all I mean by that is like, um, you know, I'll, I'll personalize it. Having been through troubling seasons of life and, and, you know, been in therapeutic settings to deal with those troubling seasons of life. And, and part of my, difficulty in processing some of those season was an obscuring of information uh yeah and and not really knowing a certain thing and 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 this person receiving my you know sort of my therapist was like okay and and i'm making this real practical but like basically said okay if you know that whatever it is, whatever this bit of knowledge is in Rex's case, it's what happened to Saskia Mm -hmm. in my scenario. It was like, okay, if you, if you've learned this information, what then? And really put the question of Mm -hmm. like, what does gaining this insight do for you? Right. And, and the point trying to be made was sort of supporting what you're saying. Let the mystery be, which, which abstractly speaking is, is a wonderful thing to do, but it was Mm -hmm. also for the sake of your soul. Right. It's like, yeah, you have to. We can't be so attached sometimes to uh, omnipotence, if, or rather omniscience, mm-hmm. if you will, that is to our own ruin ultimately. And so I, I think yeah. that's what I mean by Rex being so tragic, is it's like, you know, if if if, if God forbid a, a, a person immediately close to you just just died or 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 you know there there was some sort of weird scenario around which they left your life right and right. and and the the way, the things that would drive you to in the without aid and support in other words like rex doesn't have a therapist <laughs> you know <laughs> right, he, right right he right. needs he needs one desperately but he doesn't <laughs> badly yes and you know i guess i guess that's all i'm trying to say is like i can i can i agree with you it's strong his actions but i think the point of the story is being unable to let go of this pain and, 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 and live in the grief itself. Like he, he never grieves. He never does that. And, and, right. and it's that absence that creates a vacuum that Raymond just, just totally occupies with expertise. Right. right. Um, well, and to fa- in fairness to not that we're being unfair to him, but in fairness to, to Rex, he never grieves because he does not yet know that he needs to. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, totally. Because while it is very safe to presume, given the scenario at play, it's very safe to assume that some bit of, of uh, foul activity has happened to Saskia. That is part of his obsession is that he does not know that. He cannot confirm that she is gone. He cannot confirm that she is living or dead. Right now, like the old scientific... Um, hypothesis like schrodinger's cat she exists in this sort of strange state of she could be alive she could be dead she could be living off in some you know he gets letters 
from random people because of how public he's made his search. He gets letters from random people saying, she's here, she's working at this place down in this country, and she's doing this thing, and you know, all these different varied explanation. The most chilling of which, don't know if you caught this, but the most chilling of which, one letter says, and I, the film doesn't give us this timetable, but one letter says, you will meet her in three days. And it is not long after that. I don't know how much longer after that, but it is not long after that that he uh, that he Raymond approaches him, which is is just chilling to think about. Wow. Um, well, but, but I think yeah. But I think you're making a good point here, which is and and again trying to. I, I think the best films and the best conversations we have are trying to figure out how we apply these sorts of things, like you know, Rex's inability. Like you said, she's in this liminal space, not dead, not alive. But I think ignore the particulars of that. And and it's effectively it's existential dread, right? It's like, what yeah. do we do? What do we as people of faith, as people who comprehend and and or believe and or on our best days walk a path that is uh, faithful to something in and above and beyond ourselves in the midst of existential dread everywhere. Like how, what do we do? What do you, what do you do to put one step in front of the other when, you know, for, for, for Rex, it's Saskia's death or not death for us. It's the parent on life support for us. It's the, I don't know what it's, it's fires in California. It's, it's, I mean, if you want to get super existential, it's climate change itself, things like this that are just un, I'm not making political statements. All I'm saying is things we stress and anxiety over that we have literal no control over. Well, that- and I yes, uh, so I'll I'll get real personal with for myself with this is there are there are aspects occasionally that come up in conversation in our household aspects of what will we do if the proverbial worst happens. So, we you know, Fires uh, do break out in uh, frighteningly close proximity to where I live. What do, you know? What will we do in the event of like? Well, and so you start really paring down. It's like okay, well, you collect the essentials and you and you hope and pray for the best, and and this is the this is the exit plan or whatever. But then there's also all of those different things. Crap, the entirety of being a parent is what sure. we do. Right. If, you know, right. if the worst happens, you know, that's and, why I'm uh, identifying that gas station scene. But yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. And so, so there's all of these different things that uh, that really just sort of plague and haunt you. And I think that's I think that's one of the things I'm going to make a rather bold statement that I'm not trying to be clever or, 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 or terribly intellectual or whatever. the The film does not tell us which vanishing it is referring to, and I'm going to pause it for a moment that it is referring to Rex's vanishing hmm. because. Because Rex's vanishing is not just what happens to Saskia, which is now suddenly she's she's abducted violently and is put through this traumatic, horrendous thing. Because the film never shows us what happens to her except through the proxy of what happens to Rex. Right. But what it does show us of Rex is the steady, gradual erosion of his sense of self yep. and his and, and everything about his life. Security, stability. Yes. Yeah. All of it. All of it vanishes away. I'm being deliberate with the language there. All of it vanishes away in the light of, as you called it out, the, the trauma and the, the pending question, 
the ever-looming, ominous question that he cannot find closure to. And that is, it is a very specific occurrence. It's a very specific instance. But I would, I would venture to say that most of us in our life, in perhaps broad or smaller, more specific ways, have these kinds of dreads. These kind of things, it's like, yeah, I don't really understand that. You point back to that piece of trauma, and you're like, I don't really understand that. I'm talking about victims of abuse. I'm talking about people who uh, a a relationship had gone south, and then before you were able to reconcile, something unfortunate and tragic happened to uh, this member of your family or this old friend or something like that. Items about what whatever the listeners may be able to proxy themselves into of the thing that has no closure, the thing right, that has right, no right. resolution in your life. Um, you don't, you didn't get that opportunity to speak with that person. You didn't get the opportunity to confront that person. You didn't find justice for that uh, that abuse or that or or, or that trauma, um, whatever it is, that thing. And the the power, one of many powerful things about this film, is to watch how that kind of thing can steadily erode, as we've already said, this sense of self, this sense of that that is what will uh, steadily vanish from you, is your sense of self in the world, your sense of place in the world, uh, your sense of how to navigate, because then it all becomes everything, including, as is in the film, including new relationships with potential to move forward in wholeness and healing. New relationships still become about that thing. And uh, and it never moves forward to the very degree. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but they do dance around a bit with the notion of fate. It's what Raymond basically says, you know, finally undid Saskia, is he's like, "It, it was fate. Like, it had to be fate because there were all these missed opportunities, or all these opportunities for us to miss each other. And still, she wound up in my car at the right moment, at the right time for me to abduct her. And then he has that story, that very bizarre story, where he talks about standing on the edge of the balcony and is like, Oh, yeah. Where is it? Yeah, it was very strange. He's like, Where is it predestined that I won't jump? So, in order to, you know, basically fight fate, I have to jump. And that is a, a, a similar version of what Rex says to why he finally drank the drink is because he's like, where is it predestined that I won't drink? So in order to, you know, to fight fate, as it were, I must drink. And uh, it, it, I don't have articulation right. for That's all of the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all of the ramifications of that. But what I do anchor myself on, at least for this conversation, and then maybe we can, you know, wind it down if there's, if there's nothing more to say, is that, that sense of how when your life becomes, uh, U2 has that, uh, powerful song that I think if my U2 backstage history is uh, correct was a song kind of about a suicide is uh, stuck in a moment that you can't get out of yeah, um, it was, uh, Michael Hutchins yeah yes the suicide of Michael Hutchins and and so um so but but that as a phrase of power to the vanishing would uh, yeah. I would I would use that you stuck in a moment you can't get out of and that that place 
where uh, you can't get out of. I do not have the scripture uh, pulled up. Our conversations these days kind of lend themselves more to uh, broader theological and philosophical concepts, and so I, I much more rarely pull up specific scriptures. But um, there is a passage of scripture that that talks about uh, the the Lord restoring the years that the worm had eaten away, the canker worm had eaten away. Hmm. Um, and I think I think there is. Uh, as as trite as it may feel, I think for anyone who might find themselves resonating with this notion of being stuck in a moment you can't get out of, a moment that happened a decade ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, childhood, whatever it was, like stuck in a moment that you can't get out of and find yourself sort of uh, maybe maybe not even able to find yourself, like a sense of who you are has sort of gone I would hope not only through the path of faith, which Nathan and I would certainly um, affirm, but also through community, through uh, active self-care, um, active, uh, you know, pursuant of, of healthy habits and surrounding yourself with people who affirm said habits, finding yourself uh, realizing that there is a path out of that moment if you can embolden yourself to reach, you know, beyond just the scope of having that resolved. Uh, I know I'm being very fanciful with my language, but, uh, I think, I think put another way, you could just, you know, say to someone, you, you got to get yourself together. (laughs) Stuck in a moment. You can't get, don't say that later. We'll be better. You know, (laughs) you got stuck in a moment that you can't get out of. Oh Uh, Lord, look at you now. Got yourself stuck in a moment. Oh, goodness. What a great song. (laughs) That's a wonderful song. Um, It is. And a wonderful, wonderful film. Nathan, did you have anything more to add to this one? Uh, It's a classic. (laughs) Well, why don't we? I think it's right up there with Cool Runnings, to be honest. (laughs) Why don't we uh, pivot that in uh, uh, straight ahead into the the fog meter, as it were. So every uh, every episode we uh, rank these this material in uh, the rate of fear and God, our very specific measurement. Uh, it scares and its substance, as you were. Um, so on the fear uh, level, this film is not the type of, for me, it's not the type of film that uh, like people who are averse to gore or people who are averse to like shocks or things like that, I don't think that's going to be a problem in this film, but the existential dread is absolutely through the roof on this film. So I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to give it a nine for fear. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Um, yeah, I think it is. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with an eight and a half. All right. Here. Yeah. It's uh it's pretty potent. Uh, what would you say for its uh, God measurement? Um, I think it's a very meticulous and thoughtful, uh, you know, films that are this well made by well made. I don't mean big budget and stars, but just in terms of their intentionality, their attention to detail, their thoughtfulness in editing and craft and and all this sort of stuff clearly have something on their mind. And so Mm -hmm. while for substance for the vanishing, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with a nine. I think there's probably stuff there that we still haven't even really touched. No, I couldn't agree more. I'm also going to join you in your nine. Um, I feel like it is a, uh, it is. It's a. It's a provocative film, uh, powerful film, and uh, that means, ladies and gentlemen, that on the fog meter for Spurlus, uh, the vanishing, we give it a. 
a nine out of ten. Wow, <laughs> that's a high ranking. That's been a while for the fog meter. Yeah, it's it's been a while. I you should reference, you referenced Steve Beckley earlier. We need to find out from him where that how that competes. How yes, it stands up. yes. Um, so uh, I should mention. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. I'm only going to give uh like. 30 seconds of lip service to the remake, the 1993 remake of The Vanishing. Interestingly enough, it was by the same director. So the original director of the 88 film hmm. came and did the uh, American version of the film. Uh, it stars Jeff Bridges as the abductor character. Kiefer Sutherland is the obsessed, you know, missing his person. Sandra Bullock is the one who is kidnapped huh. in the very beginning. Uh, Nancy Travis is Kiefer's new love interest that emerges later. But uh, the film has a dramatically different ending, a uh, com- completely different ending. The substance of everything we've already described is still the same. But um, it has a dramatically different ending uh, and a far inferior ending based on uh, audience reactions and, and all of that sort well, of stuff. But yeah, don't don't leave your co-host in suspense. What happens? So uh, I forget the details because I've only seen it once. But uh, but basically, uh, Jeff Bridges is caught and Kiefer is rescued. So uh, oh, he, that's lame. so. Yeah, right, right? I mean, even just saying it. I don't remember how it all plays out, but uh, Kiefer is rescued, and uh, and yeah, and Jeff Bridges is caught and put away for good, and Kiefer and Nancy Travis walk off in the sunset or something. Um, yeah, it's pretty lame. But we're not talking about that film. We're talking about the 1988 uh, original The Vanishing, and Nathan Rouse, I want to know, inquiring minds want to know, would you recommend The Vanishing, this 1988 version? I would even recommend a second viewing of The Vanishing. Like- yeah. Yeah, I would. Yeah, it, it's just like it's not just a really well-made film, like in that boring kind of cineast kind of way. It's it's also just like a really fun film to watch. Like, yeah, I mean, at very, least my first, very my first viewing. Yeah, yeah. No, I can, and I've seen it three times. I, it, I mean, this third time was uh, feels as if it was almost more invigorating than the first couple of times. It's a wonderful, wonderful watch. Uh, highly recommend it. Seek it out. See it. Uh, I I strongly feel uh, I think Nathan echoes it that we're that you're gonna love it. So uh, seek out the vanishing from 1988. Nathan, read that is uh, episode two of this part two of speaking in tongues in the books. Uh, next week we are going to be going to a recent film, a uh, film that was uh, made in 2016 2017 ish, uh, but was only released this year. It's called Tigers Are Not afraid uh the original title Velvin, but uh, tigers are not afraid i want to let you know listeners as of right now the one and only place you can watch this is the streaming service shutter it is the only place it's not available to rent through itunes or amazon or anything like that the only way you can watch it is through the streaming service shutter uh even if you have to sign up for a month of Shutter, a month of Shutter is only four ninety nine, which is the price of most rentals. So uh, seek out; it's well worth your time. We'll talk about it next week. Tigers are not afraid. Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation about the vanishing with me. I really, really enjoyed it. You're welcome, brother. Now I'm gonna yeah. go uh, go queue up some Sandlot. <laughs> some cool running. See you next week. See you next week, guys. Bye.
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey. Our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can be found at tpublic.com. Just search The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Now you're stuck in the-